0: Welcome to the Less Chew podcast, presented by Gulf Food, the largest annual FMB sourcing event in the world. I'm your host, Jueria Hersey, bringing you compelling stories and insights to a wide range of topics in the food and drinks industry, from farming, behind the scenes, to the culinary world, and to foods we simply love to chew on. In this podcast series, we speak to people, brands, and businesses across the food and drink spectrum to find out more about why they do what they do and how, in their own way, they're championing change and shifting the future of food and drink. Trust me, there's so much more. So listen to the Less True podcast on our website, gulffood.com, and subscribe to our newsletter for the latest updates in food. Welcome back to the Less True Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Juri Hirsi, and happy 2024. Um, today, brace yourself to an electrifying episode as we dive into the incredible journey of Mukhtar Al-Khanshali, the founder and CEO of Port of Mocha. Beyond his noteworthy role as a community organizer in San Francisco, Mukhtar is a coffee innovator with roots tracing back over five centuries to the birthplace of the world's first coffee in Yemen. Featured in the acclaimed book, The Monk of Mocha, by best-selling author Dave Eggers, Mukhtar's journey is one of empowerment, resilience, and an unwavering commitment to the vision where the industry uplifts rather than represses. So join us as we uncover the inspiration behind reviving Yemeni coffee and the unique mission driving this impact venture. Welcome to the Last Two Podcast, Mukhtar. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. So before I start, I'd like to know more about your journey and why you do what you do. So if you can just share your journey, the story behind Port of Mocha and your mission to revive the Yemeni coffee.
1: So that's a, it's a very big question. I don't know yes. how many hours you have. <laughs> you can
0: kidding. be here all day. <laughs>
1: um, but uh, I think at the, the root of my story is someone who... Who was trying to find a way and a path in life? I think, especially as young people, it's hard sometimes to figure out where do we belong in this world? What is our purpose? And these big questions kind of weighed weighed down on me a lot. And growing up as a third culture kid in America, it was quite hard to try to figure out where I fit in. You know, am i am i I love my family's heritage, our food, our music, our traditions but I also love hip hop and I love American fast food and movies and it's sometimes difficult to figure out where you belong. And I, I was always interested in history. And I think history, there's so many things we can learn about ourselves. Uh, hopefully not the bad parts to repeat, but some of the, our, our heritage, some of our amazing achievements. And for me, I was really inspired by what uh, we contributed to the world as Muslims in the realms of science and, and art and, and medicine. And when I learned about coffee, it was uh, it was something I was very proud of, in particular because it was something that was unique to Yemen.
0: Okay. So tell me a little bit more about your family's heritage that you brought into Port of Mocha and like your inspiration behind your mission and your story of Port Mocha.
1: Well, in the early years, my family was not, I don't want to say supportive, but they were just... It was difficult for them to understand to um, to understand it because they had risked their lives to come to America to find the American dream, and they did not think that their their son, the eldest go son, back. would decide not to go to law school. And okay. which you know, as as immigrant kids, your parents give they give you a few different options: you are a doctor, you're a lawyer, or an engineer. True. Uh, one of my friends, he's from India, and he told his dad he wanted to be an actor, and his his dad looked at him and said, "Beta, it's pronounced doctor." <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, in the beginning, I just kind of it was more of an, an hobby, and at some point, I just felt that it was something I really wanted to be a part of. It was, I fell in love with coffee as a drink. I okay. think it was an it's an amazing beverage that really inspires people to be creative and i love the taste before coffee my my background was in uh nonprofit work in particular uh immigration mostly low-income immigrants refugees applying for asylum and i thought i really believed early on i wanted to do something around social impact for my career okay didn't know what it would be exactly but i thought being a lawyer i could champion people's rights and when i learned about specialty coffee this idea of transparency and traceability around this this coffee and how how people are treated and how they're what they're paid for when they grow it i thought that was a great place for a different type of impact that i thought was more sustainable than just ngo work i didn't know anything about coffee and so i just kind of decided that i'm going to see where this goes
0: okay so just take us to the beginning of when do you remember like the specific day or like the time where you've like you know what I'm gonna start something? Go back to Yemen. Like give us the whole journey.
1: October first uh, at twelve two p.m. 2013. <laughs> okay, uh, it exactly it's exactly okay. the date. Uh, a friend of mine texted me, uh, and sometimes in life you can a small thing like a text message could have a butterfly effect and yeah. take you on. A whole huge journey. One of my favorite quotes in, in *Lord of the Rings*. Uh, Gandalf tells Frodo, "Be careful when you open your door, where your feet will will be swept off to." Okay. <laughs> so that was my moment, my my Frodo moment. And she told me basically that there was a statue of a weird Arab Yemeni man in front of my my job that was that this, this man was drinking drinking coffee. Okay. At that point. I was at this weird crossroads with my life. I was trying to finish school. I was working a lot of odd jobs. This one in particular, I was a doorman. Um, okay. they, the title they gave us was Lobby Ambassador. Some more fancy. <laughs> I guess they thought it would make us feel better. Yeah, and honestly, <laughs> it kind of did. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds better. <laughs> um, and I was the ambassador. I was this. It was a, a really interesting building where some of the richest people in San Francisco lived. And I was there reading my books and trying to figure out my path in life. And I wasn't depressed, but I was very close. Uh, and I was looking for any kind of sign. And I think if, we, if we're aware, we can see subtle signs. Uh, I'm sometimes a bit esoteric in that regard. I think that there's always signs around us. And if we carefully, we can find things that help us uh, be inspired to follow certain paths. And but for those who who are listening, um, there's a really good book by Rick Rubin, The Creative Way. I believe that's the the title. I have a lot of books I'll be putting out here for people to read that talks a lot about finding inspiration and how I think as kids, we have this childlike curiosity. Yes. That gives us a very powerful antenna. But as we grow up, the world and society tells us we have to, we start seeing the world in prisms of utility and of um survival and we lose this ability but again another time and topic but <laughs> yeah so i i just saw the statue and and it started me down this journey of just le- learning more about the history of coffee these amazing um sufi masters and the poetry the, the literature it's a whole world of that i knew nothing about coffee you know when we learn when we see coffee now it's really this kind of secularized um, commodity that's been stripped of its soul, and its beauty, and it's now a tool for capitalism to fuel people to work harder. But in the early days, it wasn't so. It was very different.
0: Tell us how so. Like, can you give us a little bit of a mean, history of the coffee?
1: It's an amazing journey. There's thieves and poets and sheikhs and all kind of wonderful things. Uh, there's a few good books. One I would recommend called The Merchant Houses of Mocha by Dr. Nancy Om awesome person. This book when I first read it 2013, I believe, it was like the never-ending story. This where at some point I'm reading this book and I, and and at some point I get swept up into the book. Um but yeah, it, it, there's always a difference of opinion where coffee begins. Okay. Uh between Ethiopia and Yemen. Uh, yes. And depending on which side of the Red Sea you live, you'll have a different answer for that. <laughs> I am probably the only Yemeni who thinks coffee began in Ethiopia. Okay. Um, Sorry to my Yemeni brothers and sisters. Listening as a a plant, that's where I think it began.
0: From Ethiopia.
1: Um, From Ethiopia, South Sudan, uh, the World Coffee Research Program, it's an incredible institution. They state that it began somewhere in a region called the Eastern Afro-Monte region, which is South Sudan, Ethiopia, and parts of Yemen. So it could have been, but they didn't drink it there. It was grown wildly. Uh, The early consumption was they would take the cherries and they would uh, run it around with some animal fat and eat it before long journeys or even battles, kind of like an early keto diet. Oh, okay.
0: Um,
1: And there's different stories of how uh, coffee leaves Yemen, Ethiopia. This part of the history, it's really not in. You don't really find it. It's and I feel it's been marginalized and we should focus on this a lot because it's really the most important part of coffee's history, this region. Because when you read history books nowadays, it just talks about something about a goat, a camel or goat, a herder mm-hmm. named Kaldi and his funky goats, and then Mocha in Yemen, this weird city, and then somehow coffee gets invented in Italy in France, and we forget about this a wonderful time period, yeah. which coffee. So if I if I can if you allow me a little bit to stay here, it um it, it grows there. And we had an, we had a uh, Yemen's first academic symposium last year uh, in, in the, the capital Sana'a with my nonprofit, the Mocha Institute uh, in collaboration with incredible or on the ground organizations like the Unity of Coffee and the Yemeni Coffee Export Association and the Union of Coffee Farmers. And we had 18 white papers submitted from incredible academics across um, fields like genetics and irrigation and one of my favorite um, speakers was a professor from the University of Hudaydah named Dr. Abdul Wadud And I, I was so excited to be a moderator for that uh, presentation where he said, and this was in Yemen, that coffee as a plant was from Ethiopia. Okay. And the man um, who in many ways discovered coffee was a sheikh named Sheikh Ali ibn Umar al He is from Yemen. He at some point goes to uh, Egypt, to Cairo, He has a dream to go to Harar, Ethiopia. Okay. Goes to Harar. And at that time, there was a battle between the local um, Muslim emir and the tribal um, groups around the city. So he sees this Yemeni man who had an aura of nobility and righteousness on his face. And he asks him to make dua for them to win. They win the battle. And so the, the, the leader of the city begs Sheikh Ali to stay. And he ends up marrying his own sister. Okay. So the story goes that he sees them eating this weird plant. And he's like, "Why do you, what is this? What are you guys eating? They said, this is, helps us become more alert and gives us a lot of energy. And he says, like, why do you eat it raw? And so he decided to figure out a way to drink it. And he roasted the beans, takes them from Ethiopia with his new Ethiopian wife, goes to Yemen. And the first place in Yemen that uh, grows coffee is a region called Ib province, where my family's from. And he plants it there, and it spreads across Yemen. Um, eventually makes its way to the, the Hejaz, Saudi Arabia, and Mecca. Uh, uh, there was a lot of issues there because when coffee made its contact with the Muslim world, some Muslim scholars actually banned coffee. Uh, the word for coffee, qahwa, yeah. is actually an Arabic word that means it's a type of a wine. Oh. Uh, the wine that raises you to a state of ecstasy. <laughs> okay. And so a lot of Muslim scholars, unfortunately, when there's something new, they Damn immediately it. say it's haram and we'll ask questions later, which should not be the case. And so um, eventually it's it's banned in, in Mecca for a little bit, gets to Cairo. Um, the In Cairo, it gets, also the al Azhar University bans it it's actually interesting. I was at al azhar last year with some of my friends from Cairo Coffee Collective, incredible roastery out of uh, uh, Cairo. And we were there with my friend Omar Nazmi and we met with, I believe his name, he's the the Naib Reis Al-Dawah Al-Fatwah al Maktuba. And we get there and he he's telling us that he's writing a book. Uh, he says, لَيْنَمَا كُنْتُ لِكِتَابَ عَن تَارِيخِ he said in short, I was writing re- a book on the history of Al-Assad University and I got to a, a subject around Madhabsin and there was a, the, the, the title of the chapter was um, the the event of coffee okay. and so it was this situation where he says we go uh, uh, It happened to us on the year 900 of the Hijra calendar that we attended a wedding And we were given this drink called coffee that people drank. that coffee is Haram forbidden, it is intoxicant, it is unclean and is worse than alcohol. Oh, wow. And it was this huge debate between the scholar about this and this other person. And at the end of this debate, he realized it's not an intoxicant. It actually does the opposite. Uh, it gives you more consciousness and alertness and it gives you, gets you closer to Allah. So the first culture of coffee was a very spiritual culture where people got together after long days of working and they drank this drink and they, they sang songs to worship a God. Um, there's a lot of poetry. There's um, one of my favorites. Another amazing scholar, Sheikh Abdul Qadir al jaziri al hanbali He writes a book because again, there was a lot of uh, fitna around this issue. Is, is coffee halal or haram? And he actually, I think, writes the definitive defense for coffee. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's actually the oldest manuscript in existence. Uh, it's in the National Library in Paris. I was able to see it a couple of years ago. And it's called uh, Umdad al-Safwa fi hal al-Qahwa. Pillars of Purification in the Defense of Coffee, of the Solution for Coffee. And it's about seven chapters about jurisprudence in Islam, how we derive our jurisprudence, where coffee came from, its origins, why it's good for you. But at the end of this book, he has these wonderful um, poems. He says, Ya fata, li talab al muradi sharabu li talab al al um, and that was a really great poem which basically says in English um, it's a poem that talks about if you want to seek knowledge you should drink this drink if you want to seek wisdom between people drink this drink um, and the other poem which I really it's really uh, one that probably impacted me the most was by Sheikh Ali Ibn Umar himself al Ali. And in fourteen hundreds, fifteen, fourteen fifties, he writes as uh, I think it's the first real work around coffee, and he says قهوة البني ياهل غرامي سعدتني على طرد المنامي وعانتني بعون الله على طاعة الله والناس نيامي لا تلوموني على شرب لها إنها شراب سعدات كرامي. He says, "O oh coffee, O oh story of love." You helped me repel away my sleep. You helped me stay awake and worship my Lord while people fell asleep. Don't blame me for my intense love for coffee, for it is the drink of the righteous people. Wow, that's beautiful. That is. And so I can talk about this for long, but in short, coffee leaves Yemen, gets to Istanbul, becomes an amazing art form there. Uh, At that time, it was such an important part of society that women, if a, if a, a wife didn't get her daily quota of coffee, under the Hanafi code then, she could divorce her husband.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Priority, right.
1: <laughs> it, gets, it makes its way eventually to Europe. Um, one is through the Ottoman siege of Vienna, 1683. Uh, the other was the, um, Pope Clement Eighth. He actually banned coffee. He called an evil Mohammedan drink. <laughs> uh, the devil's brew, he would call it. Wow. And the people really wanted him to try it. And they begged him. And finally, he tried it. And this is one of my favorite stories. After his first few sips, he loved coffee so much that he actually baptized the beans. <laughs> uh, instead, it would be a sin to have this only for the infidels, meaning wow. us. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing about coffee is when it enters Europe, something magical happens. Uh, for the first time, there's a drink that really brings people together and builds their creativity and fuels them. And in my opinion, there's, a, there's a, a huge correlation of the entry of coffee into Europe and the Enlightenment period industrial revolution um because there are these places you had people coming together to to talk about politics philosophy art there's a book by michael poland one of my favorite um food writers and academics it's called this is a mind on plants it's three different drugs <laughs> each chapter is one drug okay. one is caffeine and he says uh he quotes uh, a german historian named wolfgang Schivelbusch would have thought it was an amazing last name. He says, a a culture that would forbid alcohol consumption and invent coffee would of course be more advanced in mathematics, astronomy, and medicine. Uh, And so coffee, in my mind, really changed the world and for the better. And so I think it's something that we should all learn about and be proud of. And it's one of my first um, motivations for for trying to continue this legacy.
0: That's beautiful. So... You've told us a little bit about the history of coffee, where it's originated, but I want to understand why you got into coffee, especially coffee production, and what were the challenges, especially taking, making coffee or exporting coffee, sourcing your coffee from Yemen, which is quote-unquote war-torn country. So can you just tell us about your experience and some of the challenges that you faced
1: yeah, I think early on, growing up again as this third culture kid, especially after 9-11, we as a community uh, were very uh, we were attacked on the media and school, wherever it was, we became this new boogeyman. So I thought coffee was a way for me to build a bridge for people to learn about our culture in a very positive way. I think food and beverage can be catalysts for these kind of bridges. I didn't, of course, do nothing about farming or roasting or export, or import laws. And so... I was just very naive and just kind of had this naive arrogance. And uh, we have a very uh, old art in America called "fake it until you make it." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's universal. Yeah. And so I just decided I could learn this thing, and reinvent myself. Um, I mean, obviously now, learn all like the difficulties and the hardships, the pain, the embarrassment. I probably wouldn't have done this to be honest. But it was. But I did not know that then. So. Um, that was my intention in the beginning. And I thought coffee could be a way to help impact people if done correctly. So I had to learn how to become a coffee person. <laughs> we actually have an exam to become a certified taster, uh, a okay. coffee kind of sommelier okay. called the Q grader exam. And it's, it's 22, um, exams. One of them, you have to learn 36 different smells for coffee. You have to learn six different organic acids found in it. Uh, you're talking to someone who failed organic chemistry, by the way. <laughs> you have to learn about um, the, the 16 visual defects, uh, all these different things, rose profiles. There's a lot of chemistry involved. And uh, it's our language to learn how to identify and to evaluate. And it's very powerful when a farmer knows what their coffee's worth. So I did that and eventually I went to Yemen this was not the best time to do any business in Yemen. Uh, unfortunately, sure. I just again had this kind of—I I don't know what to call it—naive arrogance is probably the best term. Uh, and it was also the most exciting time in my life. I went back in 2014. I got—I went to 32 different regions all across Yemen, oh. places that my—you know—you—you you, just—I read about in books. So I had these reports. Yeah. Uh, my family were of course quite concerned. What I was doing in these mountains and why I was like, I just kind of, they thought I was going through a phase.
0: <laughs> but did you go back there to discover more about coffee or was it just like going back home?
1: No, I was, well, in the beginning, I didn't really tell anyone. I thought, my parents thought I was going back to get married, <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which is not happening. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I wanted to learn more. I didn't think about a business. I thought maybe it'd be a nonprofit. Okay. I realized early on that the nonprofit model, it created this form of dependency that I didn't think was positive for, for farmers or for people. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of, let me just see where this takes me kind of situation. It kind of grew from like one summer trip to like I was there for like four months, six months and going around these valleys and mountains and meeting these people. Uh, it was such an amazing adventure. Some things were not so great. Uh, i got a lot of different food poisonings, um, (laughs) Malaria, tapeworms, uh, yeah. there's a lot of... I was around 20 pounds in this time period. Wow. Um, the country was very unstable. It was going through this this turmoil that kept getting worse and worse. Um, but there was all these great moments I had in this time. And I took back samples from 21 different regions. Okay. At that time, no one had really done that before. and And it's important to keep coffee samples separate because every village every variety cultivar has its unique flavor profile every farmer is different and if you mix the regions together um, you'd lose some of these gems which was unfortunate case so I also saw a very broken system farmers in particular they get probably 10 cents to a dollar for their work around the world under Yemen and so it was really unfortunate And my goal was to try to shorten that distance between farmers and consumers um So that was the first trip, and brought back samples. Some most of them were not great because the way they was processed wasn't um, correct. You have to pay somebody more money for them to do better quality work. And so, after that, I found two regions that were really phenomenal. Like not just phenomenal, they were like world some of the best coffees. My consultants told me they've ever tasted. And so that gave me a lot of hope to go back and start working there. I brought back brought back more samples, and they were horrible. And I realized that the way it was processed, the way it was harvested, the way it was sorted was mm-hmm. inconsistent. So I had to Go create there. this infrastructure and do everything from scratch. And um, that that was kind of the first phase.
0: So tell us what what is what sets Yemeni coffee apart?
1: The old the... varieties, like we have some of the oldest varieties in the world. We have we're the oldest country to to cultivate coffee, um, and to develop it we have really interesting elevation. The higher coffee is grown, the slower it matures and it produces more acids and sugars. And uh, the other thing was we have not that much water, which becomes a very positive thing because the trees, they are under lots of stress and that makes them produce more unique flavors. Okay. So these are just a few things that make the coffees very unique, these kind of um, uh, situations for the coffee.
0: Okay. I want to talk about what's like the current situation around the world, the climate issue, all these geopolitical crises. So how is that impacting your business?
1: It impacts every business. And I'm sure you, you because you get to talk to different people in, in different fields and we cannot uh, turn a blind eye to the political realities of where our things come from. It's it's unfortunate whether it's in Yemen or Tigray, Ethiopia or Ukraine or um, Medellin, Colombia, um, Mindanao, Philippines. All these places that produce things have are, are are unstable. Much of the instability, instability is not because of its own people, but because of the conditions they are in. Mm. And we always hear the terms countries from the these, uh, underdeveloped countries. Mm. Um, and I always. I, I don't want to say get mad, but it disappoints me when people see the global south that way. Yeah. We're not underdeveloped, we're overexploited. True. The cacao from West Africa, the oil from the Middle East, the rubber from um, um, Indonesia, the coffee from Ethiopia, the tin from this country, the, you know, cobalt from um, Congo, and so forth. All these countries produce everything that is being consumed. But the reality is that the material success. This doesn't go into the hands of the producers, except these multinational corporations that are from the Western countries that have a deep history in colonization and exploitation. Mm. So even though their armories aren't there anymore, they're still their, their factories are still there. And in the world of coffee, for example, 200% of the profit happens when you roast coffee. And the people who can roast and have the facilities and resources to roast and distribute are all in Western countries. Um, and it's quite sad, and so i'm seeing an amazing moment now where people from I call them wounded cultures, people in the global South who have a history of colonization I, a lot of young people are now reclaiming their heritage in different things and their and their um, spices and their leather goods and their chocolates and their coffee um, and it's amazing because we can tell our stories better when I hear somebody's telling... Story of their mother's or grandmother's recipe of making a particular dish, and their intimate, you know, knowledge and personal connection to that—it's quite different than somebody who's trying to figure out a marketing angle for this. Um, and so, yeah. I was really inspired to try to to do that too, to see how I could, you know, in my own way, decolonize the supply chain in this way, um, but not in just this academic theory, but actually on the ground, which is quite different it's not easy living in these countries because of their conditions. Um, So it's a longer answer for this, but I think that um, it's quite difficult, but we also have a lot of amazing opportunities because of our connection. We have this authenticity. We, We know how something is made and we can tell our stories in a different way. And no matter how difficult the situation is, we, um, It's, I mean, sometimes it's difficult always being resilient, you know, figuring out how to be creative, but it also is, it's really our strength and our, our ancestral powers. And I can go on on about this. Um, But yeah, Yemen in particular, it was really difficult. I went through a lot of not so great moments and it, it made it that much more meaningful when my coffee was served in these roasters around the world.
0: What about the like supply chain issues Is it it getting worse right now because of the crisis that are happening or do you mm -hmm. feel like it's manageable or what advice would you give to people who are in similar situations? You know, I think
1: it's interesting. I think that that's why it's important to be really deeply connected in what you do because you will be thrown these difficult problems, these roadblocks. Some of them are quite literal. Um, but if you're connected to a bigger purpose that's bigger than yourself, you will be able to overcome that and find a solution. And, and I don't mean to just kind of give you just like, you know, pie in the sky, you know, just pray. And yeah. But I do believe in that, actually, because you, it's hard to, to, to just look at the world through logic. I think one of my favorite quotes from Albert Einstein, he said, logic will get you from point A to point B, but imagination will take you anywhere. So for me, I shouldn't be here talking to you. I should probably not be alive, to be honest. But I am here. I'm doing okay. Um, and so in in our current situation, it's been difficult for eight years. You know, the sir the, the current war right now in Palestine has shed some light on the situation. But, you know, people were, you know, when they started to, to um the US government started to bomb Yemen last week, people asked me, How how are you? How's your family? And I said, This has been our life for eight years. Um, and People are used to it. It's very sad that people in these countries, especially young children, like normalize death in this way. It shouldn't be that way, but Should've. it's the reality. Uh, and so I, I don't make that the main story. Yeah. I don't like to solicit people's pity or sympathy. I don't like to post pictures of f- poor farmers who are just struggling with, with flies in their eyes and hands. Yeah. I think that. We want people's uh, solidarity more than anything. And the way to do that is to see yourself in them. That's why I try to shed stories of farmers with their lives outside of coffee. You know, they they are some of them are break dancers. I have one farmer does that. Another farmer is a chess master. Oh. Another farmer collects vinyls. Like everyone has their own story, their own unique thing. And when a consumer sees themselves in that, they can actually um, begin to create that bridge. So... That's, um, I hope this answers your question a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I want to hear more of your personal stories about your experience with coffee in Yemen that you would like maybe people to know more of because our listeners are from around the world and we do have a lot of the Western uh, countries also listening in. But I just want you to just share maybe another story about the culture of Yemen and coffee and the people that people might not know.
1: Oh being here in Dubai is right is wonderful because uh, coffee is such a huge part of Arab culture. True. It's it's a asasi It's like a major foundation for every home. Even in the Arab old Arab Bedouin tent. the first room was the coffee room. You know, and there's always a picture of a a coffee bean fire with a dalla uh, mm-hmm. on it. And so it's a really huge part of our culture and and about a lot around hospitality, about generosity, about building community. It's who we are. Um, and so Yemen is a, one branch of this wonderful um, Arab family. And it's very similar to what we see here that happens in Yemen. Uh, so most of the most important conversations happen around cups of coffee. We have a wonderful poems around coffee. The coffee harvest is a very beautiful moment for people. We love to, to sing uh, these kind of songs. There's one song um, by a very famous poet, Muhammad al Iriani, He passed away a couple of years ago. He wrote this poem where he says, uh, <speaking in> Yemen> A Yemeni coffee, O oh, pearls on the trees, Whoever grows you will never taste of hunger or humiliation. And that kind of shows the, the idea of like what coffee is in in, in society for Yemen. Yeah. And also, even with the divisions that happen in Yemen, the coffee, it's one of the few things that it's still in the national consciousness of Yemenis. And if you look closely, and I love telling Yemenis this because even they don't know this, even like our, our our eagle that we have, the coat of arms that's mm-hmm. on our passport and IDs. If you look at the you know if you look at the the chest of the eagle, you'll see uh, a coffee branch with cherries. Oh. So it's and and it's not there is no like northern coffee or southern coffee. It's you know it's a national thing. So coffee and soccer, those kind of are what's keeping the country together. <laughs> yeah, but um, it's a wonderful thing for us. And the other thing is, it's hard for me to describe you how beautiful and magnificent uh, Yemen is. But when you see images, and if you listen, just go on Google and look up Yemen or look up my family's hometown, uh, Ibb, Ibb. It looks like the Shire from The Hobbit. It's just green and lush and beautiful mountains. And they live a beautifully uninterrupted way of life where they take care of the land and the land takes care of them. These beautiful terraces on the mountaintops with these villages. They don't look real. They're on the tops of mountains. Some of them literally look over above the clouds, particularly in areas like Mm Haraz. And the people are so generous. Like when I first started to go, I remember going to these villages and they would have people from different households line up. And I would ask them, what are they doing? Why are they in line? And my friend would tell me, they're doing a uh, lottery to see who gets to host you because everybody wants to bring you over. And it's like... I mean, they'll go out of their way, they'll take loans to be able to buy a lamb or to be able to be a generous host. And if you tried to give them money, it would be a huge disrespect. <laughs> and I'll tell you, when someone gives you something from their heart, it tastes better. So I was just blown away by the generosity of people, um, you know, and it's and it's something that's very keen to this part of the world. Um, but yeah, I I was really uh, I just, it's one of the things that I hope, you know, once the war ends, people can start coming back and seeing these experience in these beautiful, wonderful moments.
0: Inshallah. Um, so I want to just get a better idea of Port Mocha and where you're located, How? where do you sell your coffees? Mm-hmm. So if you can just give us a kind of like a recap of or a summary of all your operations.
1: Sure. So uh, I started my own farm, uh, Al-Khanshali Estate, and I have a collection of a few farmers that I work with mm-hmm. uh, and they're in partner states. And so that brand... We work with a few roasters. We've sold some, some of our, our best lots through um, for, for Port of Mocha to actually some really great local roasters here like uh, Espresso Lab um, in Dubai. Brahim Malahi, shout out to him. One of the great coffee pioneers of the UAE. Uh, my friend Nasser uh, from Cartel Roasters up in Abu Dhabi, an amazing roaster and cafe. Um, there's wonderful people like Archers uh, over here. And one thing interesting about the UAE is that you have a lot of women-owned cafes, which is really wonderful in seeing that here. Um, to the Moon, uh, Zainab, she's a phenomenal, um, and a few others. Uh, a lot of our coffee is sold in Asia. So Taiwan, uh, Korea, Japan, a lot in the U.S. through, that, through those brands. And then Porta Mocha, I have a roastery operation in the U.S. Uh, we sell coffee directly to consumers online. Okay. And I have a new brand that I'm excited to launch this year. Um I don't I don't mean to leave you guys on a, on a cliffhanger <laughs> but it's it's, it's something I'm really excited about I've been trying to work on this for almost 4 years now and it Oh wow. And it's just really a continuation of what the coffee was like in the past and the and how it was a very inspiring and beautiful experience. So follow me on and you can learn more about that down the road. That's um, exciting. But it was quite a, a long journey to become entrepreneur and people who read my book it's pretty much a dummy's guide to become an entrepreneur yeah um and it's been quite a ride to just it's still surreal to see that people read that and know more about my life sure
0: so as a coffee expert what do you think are the global coffee trends that are kind of going around at the moment
1: well it's really it's wonderful seeing coffee begin to take a revival here in the middle east in particular in the gcc Mm I remember early on, I was, you can only find Arabic coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually doing, I'm going to be a judge uh, next week at the world Arabic coffee competition in Abu Dhabi. But besides that Turkish blends and it was not that much specialty coffee. And now this wonderful explosion around the, you know, and the, the GCC, um, which I feel is, it's beautiful because you start to see um, beautiful cafes and many of these roasters pushing the envelope in terms of design and creativity and, I, I like to say that we're, you know, bringing the Arab back into Arabica. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so in terms of uh, um, trends, I think that you start to, or we're starting to see a lot more experimental um, processes happen on the farm level. Things like anaerobic process, masonic carburation, slow dry naturals. People here are more aware of these kind of process techniques and are asking for them. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think that's pretty unique. There's also a new uh, wave of people drinking robusta coffee, which had a bad rap for a long time. Um, I love robusta coffee when it's done correctly; it could be phenomenal. So I'm starting to see that happen. And then something else is a lot more sustainability efforts. Many uh, roasters, uh, particularly in the U.S., they have yearly sustainable reports that they publish. And I'm, I, and it's one of my challenges to cafes here in the region that they should audit themselves from their finances, how they're paying. The more transparent you are, the actually better it is for you. Uh, customers are starting to be asked, they're starting to ask these questions. You know, how much are you paying your farmer versus what, they should, what they're normally being paid? How are you reducing your carbon footprint? Um, your waste in cafes and your packaging? And all that's really important uh, for the environment. So I really hope that cafes, uh, anyone here has a cafe or a roastery, um, or you're even a farmer, uh, there's all that you can. I, I audit myself on every level I work with, from farm level to roastry. Yeah. And I think those are the pretty, pretty much the, the biggest trends Um, in, in that regards.
0: Fantastic. So, what is your future vision for Port of Mocha? And uh, how can our listeners support your mission and the Yemeni coffee community as a whole?
1: Well, just buy Yemen coffee. It doesn't have to be Port of <laughs> Mocha. If you, there's amazing exporters out there. Um, just and also in general, when you buy coffee, because people ask me a lot, how do I know if it's if it's the right coffee?
0: Yeah.
1: Look at the bag, uh, pick it up, and look at the back of it. If it tells you the elevation, the varietal, the process, the name of the farmer or the cooperative, you're going the right way. Mm-hmm. If it has some weird random name or blend, and you ask the barista where is this coffee from, and they can't really tell you, that's not really a great sign. So that's in our word a big red flag. Okay. So just because a lot of times we think that we we can't change the world. There's so many negative stories on the news every day and we can get depressed with it. I think that we need to look at things differently. It's if if we do small things every day, small positive things. If millions of people, for example, buy better coffee that's ethical, that will have a huge impact on farmers around the world. And so that's my challenge to those listening to do that. Um, for me, just if you, if you buy Yemen coffee, if you see it, please do buy Yemen coffee and support, um, anywhere you find it. And, and if you are interested in, 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 um, taking a career towards coffee, it's a great, amazing journey. There's so many different parts of it, e-commerce, wholesale, roasting, equipment. I mean, really you can do a lot. You don't need to have a cafe even. Um, but that's my, um. In general, my advice, if I, can, I don't give a lot of advice, but that's if if I was, that would be my advice.
0: Okay, what is your favorite blend of coffee?
1: You know, I blends are also really interesting. They're great because you can mix a few different things. So when you say blend, I an old the oldest blend is the Mocha Java blend, which was a coffee from Yemen from port of Mocha and an Indonesian coffee from Java. Java coffee has tends to have like a lot of. Um, Huge body and and Yemen has its fruit notes. Uh, in terms of favorite coffees, I mean, of course, Yemen is my favorite. <laughs> but but outside of Yemen, um, I do love Ethiopian coffee. Uh, I love the, the fruit notes in, in in coffee. You tend to have two kind of camps: people who love acidity, and people who hate acidity. Mm-hmm. So acidic coffees will have notes of like pineapple or like strawberries or these kind of like or even floral notes like jasmine. Mm-hmm. The the other is more of the brown sugar flavors we call it like uh nuts almonds chocolates flan vanilla and most people are used to drinking darker roast coffee Uh, and so i i i would challenge you guys to try to drink medium roast first and see how you think about that before going to light roast Uh, but again i don't really care much about the roast you buy as as where it comes from you know farmers we really don't really care what you do with our coffee, as long as it's, you buy our coffee. And so, I would hope people start buying more ethical coffee and stay away from the large corporations that are doing do this to do so much harm to farmers and the environment. So no instant coffees. <laughs> well, actually, there are some good. There is some good instant coffee. Okay. Um, well, there's something called a pour-over pouch. I've seen where people can like make their own kind of pourovers. and you know, They sell a lot oh, of yeah. them here. A few cafes, like Nightjar and Espresso Lab, has them. Um, instant coffee. Most of it's really horrible, and to be honest, and I don't want to name names, but there are some good instant coffees. I think uh, one, for example, Blue Bottle, um, just launched this really interesting new instant coffee program. Again, it really goes back to the transparency and traceability. If you can, if it tells you where the coffee is from, who grew it, where they grew it, how they grew it, it really, you know, you're, most of those coffees aren't going to be instant. They're probably going to be whole bean. Maybe some of them are going to be um, pour pouches, but. Yeah, just buy coffee that where they, where you know that who are the people who were that grew there.
0: Okay, so this is just the last one, and it's kind of a fun, lighthearted hearted question. Um, if you could invite three fictional characters to share a cup of coffee with you, who would they be, and
1: why? Never asked that question before. It's okay. It's fictional. Um,
0: it could be. I mean,
1: first of all, Harry Potter for sure. We gotta. <laughs> I mean, Harry Potter was. I loved reading that book. Those those books growing up. Um, and um, I, I was in a, I was in a masjid one time, and I, I said, whoever I mentioned Harry Potter, and some of the older uncles were kind of looking at me, it's haram. <laughs> and I said, um, I said, uh, wave your wands, and then there's these, all <laughs> the young people wave the wands. And I <laughs> says haram. They start to laugh. So Harry Potter is one. Number two, uh, if I had to be a fictional character, um, it's interesting. What would be my fictional character besides Harry Potter?
0: Um, you can mix it up maybe
1: people people is easier but fictional character you can mix it up if it was real okay Malcolm X for sure Um, one of my favorite quotes but I hate it is he says the only thing this is before he became to Hajj and before he you know saw people as equal yeah um, because the early nation of Islam was really a reaction to white supremacy and it was very anti you know integration and blacks should be separated from whites but he said the only thing I like integrated is my coffee. <laughs> so Malcolm X for sure, he had a huge impact on me. His uh, another great book is the autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley. What a wonderful book. And a third person to have coffee with would probably be um Ahmad al-Khurizmi. who has wisdom Iraq um, he's the founder of like um uh, algebra Trigonometry um, yeah. Algorithms really You know uh, They would call it Khwarizmiyat In Arabic Because oh. of After him And I just thought he was Just like What kind of person Would think about that yeah. How would he Because nowadays We have science We have you know AI and these kind of things yeah. But What he did was A building blocks For all of this And so I thought You know Shout out to other Araqis out there It would be amazing Just to sit with him And just kind of understand Like how this person thought And Imagine if he had coffee Because he didn't have coffee your body would have came up with a lot more than just uh, trigger, uh, uh, algorithms.
0: Oh, wow. So that would be an interesting cup of coffee with those
1: three. Yeah, that, wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah, that would be.
0: I would be there. Magic,
1: mathematics, and then, you know, and then like Welcome social justice. Like, it.
0: yeah,
1: can do a whole revolution there. But <laughs> thank you for the, thank you for that question.
0: No worries. I like to just put a little fun one at the end. But thank you so much for joining us at the Let's Two Podcast. Mukhtar is really, really lovely. Getting to know you and your amazing, amazing story
1: the pleasure was absolutely all mine thank you
0: thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the let's chew podcast please share your thoughts and leave us a review for this episode stay tuned for more exciting stories from the world of fmb in the upcoming episodes brewing for 2024 and until then goodbye for now